0: He e
1: tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guyan Espiner. We are talking with New Zealand and international experts about how our world will change in the wake of COVID 19, how we live, how we work, how we govern ourselves the future of our economies, of our healthcare systems, and of our environment. This episode, we're talking about the nature of work in a post-pandemic world. And appropriately, we are joining our guests via Zoom for this panel discussion. Our guests are Robert Reich. He's an American economist and author who served in the administrations of Presidents Ford, Carter, and Clinton, he was Secretary of Labour between 1993 and 1997 and was also a member of President Barack Obama's economic transition team. We're also joined by New Zealander Anna Curzon. She's Chief Product Officer at Xero and a member of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council. Before joining Xero, Anna Curzon led the internet banking team at ASB Bank and the digital first strategy at Spark. Our third guest is Douglas Irwin. He's a professor of economics at Dartmouth College, author of many books, including Clashing Over Commerce, a history of U.S. trade policy, which The Economist magazine voted one of its best books of 2017. He worked on trade policy issues while on the staff of President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisers and before joining Dartmouth, taught at the University of Chicago School of Business. Now we're talking today about the future of work, but let's first acknowledge that for some, there won't be any work at all. So let's get this in context. And Robert, I'll start with you. How big a challenge is unemployment going to be as a result of COVID-19?
2: Well, I think some of the uh, trends that we have seen even before the pandemic will probably accelerate. Uh, I don't see dramatic shifts in those trends. Uh, but the trends, for example, toward gig work, toward contract work, uh, the trends toward uh, widening inequality, less and less uh, security in work, uh, the trends toward uh, some people having uh, work that really is only marginally uh, paying uh, and other people doing exceedingly well, uh, and, uh, and also the way in which we work, uh, more work done obviously remotely, uh, from locations that are really of the choice of wherever people want to work. Uh, those who have talents and abilities that are in demand will be more and more in demand worldwide. Uh, but there will be a very different class of work, uh, people who are paid uh, for doing what we call in the United States during this epidemic, uh, pandemic, essential work. Uh, these are services that uh, are relatively low paid, Uh, they are risky in some ways, and will probably continue to have some risk associated with Uh, and uh, also uh, are not uh, very well um, regarded. Uh, They're people who are in warehouse work, uh, delivery work, uh, uh, certain personal service work. Uh, They will constitute a very different class of people, In the United States, they don't even get any paid sick leave uh, yet. Maybe that will change. Uh, But uh, again, the trends are not terribly encouraging for them.
1: Yes, that's quite astonishing to New Zealand listeners that uh, paid sick leave isn't uh, a part of the U.S. workforce structure. And we will return uh, to that uh, throughout this discussion. Uh, But, Douglas, if I can go to the magnitude of this, you are looking in the U.S., somewhere around what 14% unemployment something like this can can we what are we all looking to in terms of context in terms of history we're talking about something that is going to have a greater impact than than the uh, than the great depression are we
3: absolutely this is off the charts in terms of its the magnitude of the shock that the economy is going through much greater than the great depression much better bigger than the financial crisis in 2009 and the great recession First of all, the speed with which this has happened is just um, astounding. Um, Even with the financial crisis in 2009, it took some uh, months for unemployment really to ratchet up. There was no one month in which unemployment went up by more than a percentage point or two. And the Great Depression was really um, in slow motion. It took, uh, you know, it was a huge decline, but it played out over four years of continuous decline. Here in one month or two months, we're gonna see an astronomical double-digit unemployment rate in the United States. Um, many people, will be, that will probably be an underestimate because people will be dropping out of the labor force. And then how do we come back? That's the uh, big issue. Obviously, that depends on the public health aspects of it. but also depends on people's habits, how quickly people want to go back to on cruises, uh, fly airplanes, go to conferences, visit other cities, go to restaurants. And so there, I'd say there's huge uncertainty about what sort of bounce back we're going to see. But the magnitude of the shock, absolutely
1: unprecedented, I think, um, in modern U.S. history. And we'll come to some solutions, hopefully, uh, later on as well. But Anna, which jobs are going to be hit hardest, do you think?
0: Well, gosh, I think it's interesting because if you think about uh, the global movements, as I think Robert was saying, we were already in a space where we were looking into the eye of automation and AI and, and thinking deeply about... Uh, what roles in the future, you know, physical, hard manual work and um, and risky work as well, you know, would be replaced by automation. And so there was a lot of thinking already going on around how do we retrain our workforce to prepare for that. And I think if anything, that's just going to accelerate now. I think the big opportunity is uh, for us to think about how do we make education and democratise education in this new world where it could and should be available to, to all? So I think uh, everything holds true in terms of what we were seeing. It's just going to be tenxed in this unprecedented situation, and now's the time for us to think really deeply about you know we've got to burn the ships moment. Do we try and go back to where we were, or do we burn the ships and keep going and uh, have a bit of a reboot moment? and say, okay, we're in the situation where we're experiencing a sort of a permafrost, a circuit breaker, if you like. Um, And we've got an opportunity to reset the the global mode of work. So, uh, you know, what are we going to do? We turn it off and turn it on again. Uh, Free will is a beautiful thing. Uh, What's our choice going to be? And I think there's a lot of thinking that needs to go on now with governments uh, and with private enterprise to help prepare for that.
1: And Anna, how realistic do you think it is for New Zealand to be able to attract uh, wealth and investment off the back of this, well, I was going to say perception, but I guess at the moment it's reality that we have handled the public health side of this relatively well?
0: I think this is a huge opportunity for New Zealand that we should not squander. Uh, I think now what we've proven is that you can work from anywhere for any company. So what you'll see is a separation between where I choose to live and where I choose to work. I don't think those, uh, I think those things can be mutually exclusive now. And it was interesting. I was listening to a, um, I was on a call with Eric Schmidt a few weeks ago, and he was talking about America needing more immigration and the fact that the, the top 50 tech companies were built by immigrants. And I was thinking about that, and I, see, I was thinking, gosh, will that really hold true in the future? Because in the, in the past, and I know a lot of people I grew up with used to talk about going to Hollywood. Uh, and then it was, I'm going to go to Seattle, or I'm going to go to the Valley, and I'm going to get into tech. And I think that's gonna change dramatically. I think you know, we want diversity in our businesses. And so I have a choice now to live in a place where I feel my purpose and my values are commensurate with the government and the community. And I also get to work for an organization which might be across the other side of the world that also supports my values. And so uh, I think there's a huge opportunity now if we can get a 5G network up and running uh, for us to attract um, fantastic people to come and uh, support our economy to grow.
1: Robert or Douglas, have you got um, a doomsday bunker in New Zealand anywhere?
2: Well, not a doomsday, but I want to just uh, underscore something that Anna just said, and that is the uh, way uh, that New Zealand has handled this. Uh, assuming that that is an indication of the quality of government in New Zealand and the quality of institutions in New Zealand, uh, is reverberating around the world in the following sense. Uh, the United States has obviously mismanaged this very badly. Uh, it's a, the United States is hardly a failed state, uh, but uh, government matters in terms of where talent goes and where investment moves around the globe, uh, I think that the big, big lesson here from the pandemic is that the quality of government decision-making and the ability of government to handle very complicated issues of public health and infrastructure uh, makes a huge, huge difference, uh, much, much larger than uh, in the United States we had assumed. Uh, And uh, Therefore, uh, New Zealand is in a very good position uh, to take advantage of uh, the way it has handled this pandemic uh, as a signal uh, for how it may be able to handle many, many other challenges.
1: Douglas, would you agree with that? And if so, then how may that manifest itself? Absolutely. Um, uh, quality
3: of governance uh, appears to be very high in New Zealand, so you should take, take some pride in that, uh, particularly compared to uh, other countries. The U.S. has not worked out so well. I will say in terms of my bunker, the problem is, is if there's a big problem, it's an awfully long swim because if the airlines aren't flying, it's very difficult to get there. I guess the broader worry that I have about New Zealand in the future is that, um, and I've written about this a little bit, is that if this ushers in an anti-globalization moment, It's precisely small, vulnerable economies like New Zealand, which will face some of the backlash. So, obviously, there's a great deal of concern right now about trade in personal protective gear and masks. And people want to reshore that and, and shut down trade. Countries are putting on export taxes, thinking about repatriating the supply chain. Well, if that could extend to other issues such as food and food safety. So, if other countries start erecting barriers saying, well, we need to have our own apples. We can't be overly dependent on New Zealand apples or uh, lamb or um, uh, wine or things of that sort, well, New Zealand uh, is vulnerable there. And so I hope the trading system remains open because not only can it help in
1: these situations,
3: but in the long run, it's very important for economies such as New Zealand.
1: Well, let's dive into that. I was going to say that for later, but uh, since you bring it up, this um, whole idea of a return to economic nat- nationalism, of protectionism, I'm reading in our papers today it's, uh, of the death of neoliberalism. Um, there's the old joke, only half a joke, that everyone is a socialist in a crisis. Um, we do see the role of government change massively, don't we? In New Zealand even, I think something over 40% of the workforce is on some sort of government subsidy at, at the moment. Uh, how much of this is going to be permanent? Uh, How much of this is going to see a shift away from these market-driven, open, free-trading economies into something more protectionist?
3: Well, I think it remains to be seen, but I think there are some worrisome signs. So we have President Macron in France speaking about uh, the fact that we've passed peak globalisation and countries have to rethink the model and turn inwards. Um, And we even see some European states uh, uh, sort of uh, bucking against the European Union Um, in terms of the migration of people and the migration of uh, essential medical goods. So I think it remains to be seen how far countries turn. But remember, fear always leads people as well as nations to turn inward. And if there's a great fear that this could happen again, um, uh,
2: those fears lead countries to turn inward in many dimensions. That's certainly a possibility. And I think that uh, uh, history shows that when there is a great deal of fear, anxiety, Uh, In the global system, there is a tendency to turn inward, but we were already heading in that direction before the pandemic. Uh, The United States was becoming more xenophobic and isolationist, and we saw in Europe uh, a a withdrawal in terms of Brexit uh, from the European Union, and uh, basically a splintering of the world economy. I I think, though, that there is this countervailing force that we need to pay a lot of attention to. Uh, Although the neoliberal consensus is coming apart, uh, part of that neoliberal consensus Uh, was that uh, government really is not important or the quality of government is really irrelevant. Um, I think that it is possible to have a global trading system uh, and an open view of the global economy and at the same time understand that governments have a very special responsibility with regard to the safety nets and the public health of their populations. Uh, I think that that may be a direction we go in. and uh, That's where uh, New Zealand would be particularly uh, benefited. Let's return
1: to uh, the nature of work and what work will look like. And I want to come to you here, Anna. Is the office dead?
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting because if you think about it, we used to put great value on the places we occupied. And uh, we always have uh, throughout history. Whether it was building the biggest castle, if you go to Silicon Valley, you know all those all those big buildings um, in San Francisco and in Seattle, and uh, and even you know the the places we'd go to eat, um, the places we'd go to shop. And I think uh, what this has taught us is it's really challenged us to think about. Uh, the activity versus the place we go. So work is an activity versus work being a place I go. And I think uh, humans are very complex and they're very different and they need different things, uh, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. So I think we need to redesign the way we construct what we mean about work. And uh, for a lot of extroverts, they'll want that social interaction and, uh, we need to design ways for people to come to the office and talk, but it's quite specific now because what we've proven is that you can still be creative, you can still be collaborative right across the globe uh, with a group of individuals online. So I think it's now getting quite precise about what problems are we trying to solve with having a place called work and what types of activities will happen there. And also from a consumer perspective, Will they see the same value in terms of uh, going into a big supermarket or a big uh, mall, um, uh, into a fancy restaurant versus ordering in and having a nice intimate meal with their family? What I love about moments like this is that uh, we'll create and design and innovate in ways that we'd never imagined before.
1: Because the the office was, I was reading about this, on The Economist did quite an interesting piece on the office and sort of dated it back to sort of the uh, 1820s. So it hasn't been around forever as a concept. Um, And Robert, perhaps you can correct me on this, but I I read that up to half the US workforce uh, works remotely already. Would that roughly be your
2: assessment? Yeah. Again, that, that was already the trend. And what we're seeing now is more and more people becoming comfortable uh, working remotely, uh, comfortable with the technology, able to collaborate, as Anna said, uh, across great distances without being necessarily in the same physical space. Uh, I would not invest heavily in commercial real estate right now uh, because I don't think that is really going to be where people are uh, going to see a lot of value. Uh, but uh, if I were an investor, I would be investing in a lot of apps uh, that have to do with remote connection and connectivity, Uh, that's where more and more value is gonna be created. So you wouldn't be investing in WeWork? Uh, I don't think I would, no. (laughs)
1: Just before we leave this idea that we may change the way we work, that we may work from home more, if you look at someone like, it's Richard Florida, isn't it, who who had this idea of the creative class, and his his idea was that the metropolitan regions attract all the talent, the artists, the musicians, uh, the bohemians, as he called it, and he even had this index where if you can attract those kinds of people, you would attract that talent. And I think of places that you've mentioned, San Fran, Palo Alto, I mean, even though they're tech companies they still want to cluster and get together. So, you know, we are still social
2: animals, right? Douglas, We do, do we really think we can leave all that behind? I don't think we can leave that behind, but I, I think that uh, there is a serious question now as to what that social animal is going to look like uh, after this pandemic or in years to come. Uh, just like uh, after 9-11, we no longer easily got on airplanes. We, our, our assumptions uh, about metal detectors and all sorts of other things changed. I, I think that we will uh, not be getting together quite as often or as easily. Uh, we probably won't be venturing into as many retail shops uh, quite as conspicuously. Uh, I think that uh, it, it probably is the case that there are still going to be creative commons, but those creative commons don't necessarily entail direct person-to-person uh, interactions. Maybe creative commons can happen remotely in ways that we haven't yet imagined.
0: And they don't need to be exclusive either. If you think about where the tech companies were, it was very exclusive. It was very hard for regular people to buy housing uh, in in those areas because of the price, right? And I think what again, technology can do, it is the great democratizer. It allows you to connect with other creative folks and communities right across the world and be very inclusive. So it's not about, again, the space you occupy and where you live and not being able to take advantage of those opportunities to have those creative discussions just because of geography. But now it's about technology enabling you to reach out to like-minded people right across the world.
2: If if I may just add one other thing, and that is, uh, Anna, you talk about the great equalizer, and I think you're right, uh, but uh, the digital divide, at least in the United States, is very, very real. Uh, And I am very concerned about the possibility that we are creating a group of people, uh, workers and also young people, who don't have the equipment uh, because they just don't have the the, the assets necessary uh, to be part of this new digitized economy. Uh, I see very, very clearly the direction education is heading in, for example. Uh, There will be more remote learning. Uh, But if young people are on the other side of that digital divide, uh, they are going to be more disadvantaged in coming years than they have been even up to now.
1: We've said that the virus doesn't discriminate, right? You know, death lays its icy hands on kings. And Boris Johnson, Tom Hanks, Madonna, doesn't matter who you are, the virus uh, could uh, come after you. But in terms of the impacts of the virus... It, it will discriminate, won't, won't it, Douglas? What degree do you think that this will have an impact on inequality and, and how much does that matter to you?
3: I think Professor Reich is really the expert here. And I think he is right is that uh, there are people who are still working in the United States. And you think about workers in meatpacking plants, um, other essential workers who are you know, keeping the food supply going, who are keeping the packages moving, um, they're very much at risk. In addition, um, I think one has to think about the acceleration of mechanization in some of these uh, areas. So, uh, you know, it used to be we have created a lot of manufacturing jobs. Those manufacturing jobs aren't around as much. So what happens to people who don't have the uh, ability to go to college, who just have a high school degree, but used to be they'd be in retail or in some of the service sectors. But if now we're distancing and retail is going away and uh, perhaps moving goods, we do that by drones, or I know in cities now, robots are doing that. Um, where are the jobs going to come for that class of citizens? So I think the digital divide is something very, very important. And, and I don't think we really know where we're going on that, but it's something to worry about. You know, people like myself, I'm still teaching. I have access to this technology. Many of my students, but not all of them have the same. But that does not, that not everyone can work at home or have access to that technology. And that's, that's something that we're, we're going to have to think about in the future.
1: Anna, this is obviously something that concerns you too. You, you you first raised it in this discussion. What what are the solutions potentially to this?
0: Well, I think it comes back to to the discussion around government. And when we, if if you believe Nicholas Stern's view of capitalism that it's there to look after the people you can't see, then we really have to think about what are the thing, where do we where do we create blind spots in this journey? Um, through technology and through the industrial revolution. And if you think about it, uh, and, and Mark Andreessen wrote a great piece on this the other day, uh, technology has been an excellent enabler. But if you're a government right now and you're thinking about the bigger picture, why wouldn't you want every 18 year old getting the best education they can? And so is access to technology now a human right?
1: Robert, you made the Netflix movie Saving Capitalism. Um, Do you have any ideas about whether capitalism is the answer to this? And if so, how would it be? People are saying government's the answer. There's a big tension there. A, a, A lot of free market advocates like governments to get out of the way.
2: Uh, Well, I don't think that the tension is as large as uh, some free market advocates uh, might suggest. Uh, Government is absolutely essential, not only with regard to public goods like public health, uh, but also with regard to providing a basic minimum security so that people can go about their lives. In fact, I'll go so far as to suggest that in the post-pandemic world, governments are going to be necessary to give people enough security so that they can actually be outwardly looking and generous uh, rather than inwardly looking and ungenerous. Uh, That may be the new paradigm, in fact, Uh, rather than have uh, everybody very scared uh, and fearful about the future and therefore putting up gates and... uh, putting up all sorts of barriers to the rest of the world and to others outside their community, Uh, what we need is just exactly the opposite. We need governments to provide people with a kind of uh, basic income uh, and the kind of healthcare and other forms of security that they need so that they can actually embrace uh, the technologies that are available to them and be outwardly looking. I think you
1: touched on um, uh, minimum basic income there, right, what we would call a UBI. That's an idea that you've advocated for some time, um, one that's had some traction in New Zealand too, Anna. Do you have a, have a view on whether that's the, the way to go?
0: I think we have to look at means testing in that regard. I think uh, it, ca- it can't be an isolation of having a plan to give and enable people with the skills to survive and thrive Post COVID and through COVID, um, and again we were staring into uh, low productivity, one of the worst in the you know OECD uh, countries. And I think from a New Zealand perspective, uh, yes, that's one solution, and and it's got to be retraining uh, for cognitive, uh, collaborative skills, for digital skills. So I don't think we can look at. Um, just that in isolation, because what we want is a really robust and confident workforce uh, who can do the best work of their lives and contribute globally, uh, not just in New Zealand.
1: Douglas, governments are throwing the kitchen sink at this. Uh, Central banks are throwing the kitchen sink at it. Are you worried that we're making mistakes in our haste?
3: Well, we, of course, will make mistakes in haste. We always do. But they're moving in the right direction. Particularly the Federal Reserve has been very quick off the mark. Um, maybe even a little bit faster than they were in 2008, 2009. And I think that's a good thing. But really, there's only so much central banks can do. It really is up to treasuries, and uh, that means more broadly, uh, the political system, Congress, and the president, to uh, rethink um, how we deal with this and uh, make the funds available and uh, make sure it's not just um, the central banks doing things alone and and thinking about the future, too, uh, of of making sure that we're prepared next time because we were woefully unprepared this time, unfortunately.
1: You're listening to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espiner. We're talking to New Zealand and international experts, looking at how our world will change in the wake of COVID-19. We touched on this before about whether this will accelerate uh, changes that we were already seeing. And Robert, you talked about the gig economy where people get by with two, three, four jobs, uh, working for companies like uh, Uber um, and often having sort of zero hour contracts. Um, do you think that we are going to see an acceleration of that trend?
2: I do. Uh, I think that uh, in the United States, for example, employer provided health care, uh, had been the norm at least uh, with regard to managerial professional and technical workers uh, but uh, in this pandemic uh, we see that a lot of people who have lost their jobs have lost their health care uh, and a lot of people therefore are are understanding for the first time that it makes no sense to depend on your employers for health care just like it probably makes no sense to depend on depend on employers for uh, your pension uh, maybe uh the trend that so many workers have felt uh, and and experienced toward gig work toward contract work is going to uh be understood by many many other workers uh as a necessary trend let's Let's give people the health care they need, but di- disconnected from the job. Let's give people the pension benefits they need, disconnected from the job. Let's let's accept uh, the inevitability of gig work and contract work, uh, and uh, let's let's not uh, depend on a single employer.
1: For our uh, New Zealand listeners, uh, Robert and, and Douglas, it is true, is it in in the states that you don't get paid sick leave? I mean that to to my ears seems extraordinary, like the incentive that you would have to come into work if you were sick because you wanted to get paid. Uh, Talk me through that. How does that work?
2: Uh, Well, as as a former Labour Secretary, I can tell you that in 1993, when Bill Clinton was elected, uh, we had already fought uh, uh, for seven long years, uh, to get family and medical leave, unpaid family and medical leave. It was not even uh, a, a uh, there was not even such thing as, as unpaid family and medical leave. Uh, finally, uh, we got a piece of legislation through, through uh, Congress and signed by, by Bill Clinton, first piece of legislation, which guaranteed people 12, week of, 12 weeks of unpaid, unpaid leave if they needed it because of a family emergency or sickness. Uh, America is so f- much of an outlier. Uh, The United States is so much of an outlier uh, from all advanced uh, uh, post-industrial countries with regard to uh, issues such as uh, family medical leave, sick leave, vacation time, uh, health insurance, all of these things that many uh, of you might take for granted uh, still are, are very, very far away from reality in the United States. But here too. Uh, I think the pandemic and the experience of the pandemic may have hastened a change, uh, even in the United States.
1: Douglas, do you do you agree with that? Do you, do you, do you foresee change in that area?
3: I do. And, and going back to your discussion of universal basic income, this is something that academics and maybe philosophers would talk about five years ago, but it's actually on the political debate now. And it's not just the progressive left, but there are actually some people in the Republican Party, such as Josh Hawley, who are rethinking conservatism as a way of providing uh, uh, support for all, and and once again, sort of this inward turn, but providing a stronger safety net, and I think that goes to family benefits and UBI. So at least there's a discussion going on, which I think creates the opportunity for political action in the future. Once again, uh, sometimes ideas come from strange places. Milton Friedman proposed um, not a universal basic income, but a negative income tax, and basically, uh, Anna was talking about means testing, universal basic income. Well, that's basically a negative income tax because you're taking it away from those who don't really need it and those who uh, do get it get to keep it. Um, So, and the issue there is, what do you do with all the other uh, welfare benefits or welfare programs that we have? Do you um, contract those and throw everything into UBI,
2: or do you keep those programs in place and try to make them uh, operate a bit better? I think politically, uh, it is uh, much more palatable now having, you know, millions of people, uh, tens of millions of Americans uh, going through unemployment without any uh, income support at all, uh, to talk about a, uh, at least uh, something that is minimum. I mean, uh, we're talking about just that prevents somebody from losing their home uh, and, uh, and starving and, and making sure that they can provide food for their families. Anna, what are we
1: going to do with an army of unemployed people? I mean, there are going to be a lot of unemployed uh, people, aren't there? Or a lot of people at least underemployed and working mm. fewer hours.
0: Well, I think there are opportunities, as I've talked about earlier, for retraining. This is a big opportunity to lean in and say, hey, there are. there's a whole new world out there in terms of whether it's digital or automation, uh, but uh, lots of opportunities from a, a digital retraining perspective. And I saw that uh, Coursera had gone out and offered um, Their 3,800 online courses are free to all of, you know, every global educational institution. So I think, uh, you know, there is an opportunity to pivot and to say, oh, while we get through this phase, yes, having a, um, a universal basic income, but let's plan and let's plan for people to, um, to have that dignity, to have a wage, to have a role in society. And what could that be? I also think, too, as we come through this, there will still be, uh, you know, manufacturing will continue to thrive, I think, for the reasons that we've talked about. And they'll be high-paying jobs. They won't necessarily be people on a conveyor belt, but they'll be um, very automated, specialised, high-paying jobs, creating, designing, building big manufacturing plants of the future, And so there will be an explosion of jobs and probably without, you know, my 13-year-old, near 13-year-old daughter, probably 80% of the jobs that will be available when she's my age, we haven't even imagined yet. So it's exciting times, but from a training perspective, focus on those ubiquitous skills that we know people will need to, to have. And again, that's around basic digital skills, cognitive collaboration, high EQ.
1: I'm going to finish with the predictions, and I'd like to, uh, to, to, to come back to your 13-year-old at that point, uh, Anna. But you used an interesting word in your last answer, and it was dignity. And I wanted to talk about that in terms of work and self-worth, because for many of us, our jobs are tied to our self-worth. And I'm wondering from all of you how you see the pandemic changing that, if at all.
2: Uh, I do see a change, Um, and uh, ideally, uh, people become, through this horrible experience, uh, more sensitive uh, and more appreciative uh, of many of the jobs that were considered to be uh, undignified and relatively low status, uh, such as uh, people working in warehouses, in delivery, uh, in meatpacking, Uh, And certainly, especially nurses uh, and hospital orderlies uh, and people in the caring professions, Uh, there is, I think, a new profound appreciation of many of these so-called essential workers uh, because they are absolutely critical and essential uh, to people getting by.
1: Yes, we've inverted the pyramid, haven't we? Where the essential workers are, your grocery store, supermarket worker, uh, and your uh, pilot and CEO are, are um, at, for the moment, uh, you know, not nearly a- as as essential, but. How much of this is permanent? Are we going to just go back to the same ways that we were before and we think, oh, well, anyone can do this job of being a supermarket person, so we're still going to pay you minimum wage or, or less and, and not respect what you do? I mean, how much of this is going to be permanent?
2: Well, that's, I think, the big question. Uh, and there uh, lies the issue, again, that we've come back to again and again, and that is government. Uh, because if it's just the market. Uh, the market does judge a lot of these jobs as, uh, as, as sort of not only undignified or l- low-dignity jobs, but jobs that anybody can do. They're fungible jobs. Uh, but I think that uh, having gone through this uh, together uh, in a society or many societies, uh, there is more uh, room for uh, an increase in the minimum wage, uh, an increase in hazard pay. Uh, bonuses uh, and uh, paid sick leave in the United States, other things uh, that uh, at least suggest that all of these jobs are more important than the market might simply designate them on the basis of supply and demand.
1: Does this challenge some of uh, your thinking, Douglas, Um, as far as I've read and listened to to your speeches, you're quite quite a a free market, free trading um, advocate, would that be fair? Does this challenge your thinking?
3: Not really. I mean, I agree with just about everything Professor Reich just said. Um, And I also think that's not incompatible with free trade at a global level, um, but that doesn't mean laissez-faire in terms of domestic economic policy. I think I uh, underscore exactly what Professor Reich just said. I think there is a new appreciation about where our products are coming from, who are helping to deliver them to us. You know, one of the odd things about the pandemic in the U.S. is there was a run on, of all things, toilet paper in the United States multiple press articles about, well, where are these produced, in what plants, who's, who's doing those extra shifts to make sure that we don't, quote-unquote, run out of toilet paper. Um, and then food chain, too. We've become very interested in where our food's coming from, which is selling out quickly, uh, appreciation for our supermarkets, which are open. Um, and, uh, and I think they, too, have to uh, treat their workers better in terms of uh, the safety conditions. So I think workers are going to demand this as well the Amazon, people who are working at Amazon are demanding and are pushing back against the company and saying that you know, we're not gonna go if, if the work conditions are not uh, safe, safe and uh, clean. And so I think there is, a, once again, all crises are opportunities for rethinks and I think there's a rethink of the relationship between labor and business and an appreciation of consumers about where their goods are coming from and who's helping bring them to us.
1: What about the role of unions? Will that strengthen post-COVID-19? Professor right. you have a
3: Secretary of Labor right here. Um, I guess I'll just throw in my two senses that, unfortunately, the problem is, is that for Amazon, for a lot of these uh, gig workers or some of these workers, they're not on, uh, unionized on a national scale. So, uh, the coordination is much more difficult. If you have one, um, one meatpacking plant here or one toilet paper factory there and the workers aren't unionized, it's uh, much harder to uh, get that collective action.
2: Well, that's exactly right. And, and uh, again, one other outcome of this terrible period uh, may be a new appreciation of the importance of union organizing, uh, because workers do need to be protected. Uh, workers who have unions behind them uh, have more uh, opportunity to have a safe and health, a healthy work environment. Uh, but workers who are just barely on their own Uh, who have no union at all to speak on their behalf and negotiate a healthy work environment uh, for them uh, are uh, endangered. Uh, And I think uh, this may be a wake up call with regard to unionization.
1: Anna, what do you think the translation of that will be to a New Zealand uh, context?
0: I think it might be unions, but not as we know them. And I think our discussion around the gig economy earlier uh, means that we're going to have to organize ourselves in a different way. Uh, so we have representation for communities that you know are brought together because of the activities and the work that they do, but not necessarily a, a specific sector that they're in. So I think, again, unions, great opportunity, never, never lose an opportunity in a crisis, really do need to redesign themselves and think about Again, how can we support this burgeoning economy of uh, gig workers who might be you know cleaning subways in the morning? And again, if we're thinking about uh, the frontline workers, wow, well, you know, cleaners are our new heroes because they'll be out there all day, every day, like we've never seen before, wiping down lift buttons and subways, etc. So they might be doing that in the morning, they might be uh, driving their Uber and delivering goods in the afternoon and uh, who is their voice in in that respect. So I think, again, we need to reimagine that. And and I think that goes for all of us. Uh, My mother used to tell me a bad day for the ego is a good day for the soul. And I think that's the moment we're in, whether you are a CEO of a large organization, you're going to have to change the way you manage your people and you lead your people potentially now because you won't have that line of sight. Can you explain that to me? How
1: how will they have to change that, Anna?
0: I do believe they will because what technology will give us is more choice. And so based on our previous discussion, you might decide that actually I don't need to work for an organisation in the place where I live. I can work somewhere else. And so uh, we might actually see more, you know, free market uh, labour movement, the global citizen emerge. Uh, And so... In that respect, I think every CEO needs to be looking at, you know, how do I lead my people when she doesn't have a clear line of sight of where they are, who they are, and also, too, encouraging transparent conversations through the likes of Slack and other tools. You're
1: talking about a a, a globalised tech workforce, almost, are you, where borders are irrelevant?
0: Correct. Correct. So it's interesting because in tech we talk a lot about the fact that we need more diversity because if we're solving great problems, we need to be solving problems for the communities that are using our tech. And so even if you are in Seattle, San Francisco, New York, Auckland, and people from all different parts of the world arrive there, they're going to end up uh, mimicking you know, a lot of the social norms of that specific area. What I'm excited about is having a true, diverse and inclusive global workforce where we can have people working from India, uh, New York, um, somewhere in a Nordic country and bringing all that diverse thinking into the way we produce beautiful products and services for our customers.
2: That's a noble and I think important trend that was also already underway. Uh, The other piece of that, and maybe on the other side of the divide, is the question of uh, the concentration of industry because I think we are already seeing and already we're seeing more and more consolidation of big high technology companies. Uh, now, after the pandemic, after the need for technology, particularly digital technology, uh, the technology that connects us, uh, we are probably going to need antitrust, anti-monopoly laws uh, to ensure that those big, big technology companies uh, don't become predatory.
1: Douglas, would you agree
3: with it? Uh, Well, actually, I had another thought, which is the the interrelationship between, say, a UBI, universal basic income, and uh, empowering workers. Because I think one of the things that is uh, pushing workers to go into those plants, say the meatpacking plants, which are unsafe, is they don't feel they have another option. And that's what puts uh, food on the table and money in the bank, and they have no alternative. If you have a universal base, basic income, it really does empower workers because they can walk away and they have a safety net and they don't have to take uh, the, the bad environment that they might be forced into, whether it be Amazon or some other place. So UBI is very much related to um, helping out workers, not just in terms of that income, but in terms of the quality of jobs that they uh, might want to take and, and can walk away from.
1: It has been experimented with, hasn't it? It hadn't been that successful as an idea. I guess this changes everything now, right? All bets are off. The, the rule book has been thrown out.
3: Finland tried it and they think they did pare it back, um, but I think the idea is still alive and, and
2: it's worth trying.
1: What else falls into that box that that suddenly isn't a crazy idea anymore?
2: Well, in the United States, there, there are many, uh, many possible ideas. Uh, Again, I wanna talk about universal healthcare and paid sick leave and other things that are taken for granted elsewhere. Uh, These will become more salient and more palatable uh, after we get through this.
0: I wonder too, uh, if we look at education and access to education, uh, you think about how many hundreds of millions of dollars are donated and plowed into the big universities throughout the US. And again, if I was in government, I'd be thinking, The one thing that we can do for this economy right now is to have a really educated, curious workforce and uh, how will that be democratized into the future and what pressure will those big uh, universities come under um, to open up the education programs?
1: So that's one of the positives possibly out of this. And I had a heading positives, but I haven't got much underneath the heading. Um, But um, I guess that's potentially one of the positives out of this pandemic, is it? The the opportunity to to upskill, to retrain, to focus on education. We know that always in times of high unemployment, we have people flocking back to tertiary study, don't we?
0: Absolutely, and we needed to do this, especially in New Zealand. We knew this was coming, we knew automation was coming, we knew our productivity levels were woeful. So great opportunity right now, right across the globe, to rethink about the work that we need and supporting people everywhere to achieve that.
2: I think also that uh, the issue of public health uh, is becoming more salient. I mean, obviously, uh, in a place like the United States, there was not very much attention paid to public health. And public health uh, in a pandemic is very, very close to concern about the environment uh, and uh, climate change uh, and all that goes with that. I I would suspect that there is more of an interest in uh, the responsibility uh, of a society, a a country like the United States in dealing with climate change, uh, maybe a reaction against uh, the isolationism and the anti-science bias with regard to climate change of the Trump administration.
3: One of the things that's happened is both in LA and I believe in San Francisco is that as economic activity has really imploded, um, the skies have cleared. And that sort of reminded people about what clear skies look like. And so I do think there's a link between the climate agenda and uh, what's going on today. And I also think that this creates opportunities. For example, if we are going to expand the social safety net dramatically with healthcare and UBI and things of that sort, it has to be paid for. And a carbon tax is a tax that all economists love in some sense, and that should be back on the agenda. Instead of subsidizing fossil fuels, as the world basically does overall, um, countries should be moving towards taxing carbon.
1: Let's end with the future and some predictions, uh, which can often be a mug's game, but hey, uh, we, we, we can speculate. Um, you talked about, reference uh, referenced your daughter a couple of times, uh, Anna, I think, um, saying she's, she's uh, in her early teen teenage years, 13. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of jobs do you think are going to be around when she enters the workforce? And how will this pandemic play into that? In other words, what are the jobs and areas that you'd say, look, don't don't bother looking too hard at this and what are some of the opportunities you see in, in in that in the in the future
0: well i think uh as a young woman there'll be more opportunities because if more people are working remotely a lot of those social biases will begin to be removed because it'll be your contribution versus if you look like a traditional leader which uh Uh, you know, has plagued a lot of uh, business workplaces in the past. so I'm really excited about that. Uh, I think, again, not so much about the jobs that she'll do, but the uh, cognitive abilities that people will need. And so I think for that generation, being able to be excellent communicators and collaborators, um, having those cognitive and basic digital skills. And that's not to say... Uh, When you create, you need to be a coder. When you create, you can be a designer. You need to be able to collaborate with other people and clearly communicate. I think the idea that uh, she'll look back and laugh, that I might've worked for three or four organizations in my life, most of uh, work in the future will be, you know, she'll be working for three or four organizations at exactly the same time. And I think uh, there'll be a lot more balance in terms of the problems that she'll be solving. So it won't be about how do we make the next buck for our shareholder for the next quarter. It'll be about, you know, what big problems can we really solve here that are sustainable? Because let us not forget the the big coronavirus of 2020 and the fact we were so unprepared. So I think there'll be a lot more balance into the uh, problems that uh, we'll be selected to solve. Uh, In the future,
1: we'll go to you, Douglas, and then uh, last word to to Robert in terms of um, the future of work and the uh, prospects for our young people. Douglas.
3: Almost all of my research is on economic history, so I like looking backwards, not forwards. I think I'm very poor at looking forward. So I guess the only caution I would offer is that yes, this is an opportunity, but also it depends on how much of an impression this moment makes on us. You know, if we have a vaccine in nine months, a year, and uh, this sort of fades away, um, that moment, that opportunity for big change may pass us by, and we may go back to normal uh, in in some way. Um, The longer this plays out, obviously the bigger, the deeper the impression. That's one reason why the Great Depression led to a really a reorientation in American uh, political economy, if you will. It was going on and on and on. There was no end in sight. Um, So if this is over fast, we might go back to normal relatively soon. If not, um,
2: there could be uh, enormous uh, uh, seismic changes in American politics and economics. Uh, Well, sadly, I don't think this is going to be over fast. Uh, I'm not an epidemiologist, but everything that I read, everything that I hear suggests that we are not over this, and we're going to see more of a public health challenge in all our countries. I I want to, a lot of the discussion, uh, at least for the last uh, bit, has been very optimistic. I want to sound a note of caution, uh, and that simply is this, uh, that it is very easy to see that the well-educated and the well-connected are likely to do very, very well uh, in the future uh, because they have not only more opportunities, but for all the reasons Anna said, uh, we are living uh, in a a technologically intensive world where creativity and problem solving are becoming even more uh, rewarding, uh, but at the same time, uh, and given the pandemic, uh, retail work, uh, restaurant work, hotel work, uh, and much of the uh, kind of routine work uh, that kept an economy going is going to be automated out of existence or become much more difficult to make a living at, uh, and less. And here's the big unless, unless we recognize uh, that we as a society or we as societies have some degree of social obligation and social solidarity uh, to those who are not doing as well as we are. Therein lies, I think, the big question mark. Uh, Are we going toward more inequality or are we going toward more equal opportunity and more of a broad-based prosperity? I simply don't know. But I do think the question uh, is very much of the essence.
1: Absolutely. Good place to leave it. Thank you very much, Robert. Robert Reich, also joined by Anna Curzon and Douglas Irwin, thank you all very much for your thoughts and fascinating discussion on the future of work. After the Virus is produced by RNZ, by me, and Espiner, and Justin Gregory. Claire Eastham farrelly is the Visual Director, Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkin are the Executive Producers. You can also watch this series on video, so head over to rnz.co.nz slash podcasts to catch that and for plenty of other great content. All RNZ podcasts are free to listen to and ad-free as well on rnz.co.nz and on the RNZ app.